A wild one in Starkville. The party continues in Starkville. He's a pleasant lad from Starkville. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. Doug, yes. what's shaking this week, man? You, you haven't unbroken any of your own records since the last time I talked to you, right? I have not since I probably hold zero, so it's hard to break <laughs> break those records. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, that's actually a little spoiler alert. And we'll explain later in the podcast how it's even possible to unbreak a record since that actually did happen. <laughs> but first, Doug, we need to mention something. This is a really exciting day for us, the citizens of Starkville. We've been doing this podcast, you and I, for months. But this is like our second opening day because... We're no longer available just at The Athletic. People can now listen to us via iTunes, Spotify, and almost everywhere podcasts are sold. So, Doug, here's what I think we need to do. We need to introduce ourselves again yeah. to our whole new audience. And what I'd like to do is, once again, let's do our greatest hit with one more retelling of the legendary Tyra Banks story. You'd be up for that, right? Yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> never get tired of that story now in case you folks are not familiar with the two of us doug and i are friends but we're also kindred spirits i think that's the right term uh, that's because one of our favorite things about baseball is that weird stuff happens that feels like it should be almost impossible doesn't seem to happen in the other sports and like just later on in this podcast for instance Doug is going to attempt to explain how he thinks it could have been possible just last week for a pitcher to pitch to himself. <laughs> but first, <laughs> let's do a quick recap of how we got here. Yeah. Uh, Doug and I met in the late 1990s. He got traded to the Phillies. I was writing kind of a baseball humor column at the Philly Inquirer. Well, my thing is I'm always looking for the funniest players in every locker room. Doug got to Philly, figured out that was him. So that that's how I met him. But Doug's history with me actually goes back before that. So Doug, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it started really when I was in college. I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I was a huge Phillies fan. And the Philadelphia Inquirer column that you had was a favorite of mine. Uh, the Week in Review, we just go over fun facts about the game. And it was unique and it was different. It wasn't just sort of a numbers game. It was the storytelling behind it. And just, you know, what I related to as a ball player, just having fun. And uh, so it started there. So I was a fan. I know when I first met you, Jay, like I said to you, like, you know, I was a fan. Like I got to Philadelphia, <laughs> <laughs> traded from the Cubs uh, in the 97 offseason. And uh, we ended up kind of working together in a very, you know, quote, relationship. And as a result, yeah. I, I met a lot of amazing people like Tyra Banks and uh, so that that began there. And of course, professionally, once I was at ESPN and you were there and now The Athletic, uh, we were able to 
connect on this level to see how we look at the game through the same lens. I mean, we always have these real interesting convergent moments. Like we went to see a Keiko Matsui commercial uh, concert. Not commercial. <laughs> we did. We saw Keiko Matsui in concert in like Clearwater, Florida. So those of you out there who don't know her, you know, kind of a new age jazzy uh, <laughs> artist from Japan focusing on piano. Like that was random. And you're just using the quote I wrote in the tribute to you from the Game of Thrones. And you used it in your speech. I mean, so I did. So we see the same uh, the game through the same lens, and it's it's so fun to be able to share it every week as like former ball player journalist, where we all collide in this exciting and fun way. So that's uh, that's how it all began, and that's how we'll keep it going. Yeah, we have some fun on this podcast, just like we do in real life. <laughs> but Doug, this is it, man. It's time once again for the Tyra Banks story, and I'll set this up tell you how he got to this um this is after wade boggs got his 3000th hit and what kind of hit did he get he hit a home run and what did he do when he reached home plate he kissed the plate oh my god <laughs> disgusting. So, totally disgusting <laughs> yeah so like i set out to write about that 3000th hit what angle did i choose i thought i would ask players all right what would have to happen for you to kiss home plate. So Doug, <laughs> right. why don't you tell us how you answered that question? Yes. And just for your listeners out there, my wife did approve of this message. So we're good to go. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So Wade Boggs comes around and kisses this completely filthy thing that has like tobacco and lime and dirt. And, and uh, of course I <laughs> thought of it and you know, you and I, this is what we did. We talked back and forth with banter. And I said that you know, the, effectively, the only way I'd kiss home plate is if Tyra Banks has pictures on it. So that was it. You know, I thought I was good. We had our fun. It was, you know, in our column and you had your column going. And then mysteriously, I get a, a, a kind of a call from my agent. I go to, I remember a Jackie Robinson Foundation event and they tell me that Tyra Banks is looking for me or something. I was just like, yeah, whatever. Because the quote apparently got picked up in the LA Times as like the sports quote of the day or quote of the day. And she apparently read it, but I still really didn't believe it. And then she said, well, no, they're looking for your address. I was like, well, you have my address. And I ignored it after that. Right before Christmas, I have a package arrived at my parents' house where I was in the off season that was really weirdly shaped and heavy. I was like, what in the world is this? So I open it. And sure enough, there's a home plate inside it with Tyra Banks had screened her picture on uh, in a swimsuit with a, <laughs> it was signed from her saying, Dear Doug, you don't have to wait for your 3,000th hit. You can kiss home plate right now. Tyra with the heart says like, what? So the other thing was, a, yeah, so I mean, it just blew my mind. So this was real. And I had a, um, she included an invitation to her birthday party, which was some sometime in December, I think. And uh, of course, when I, I did go, I did a little research, found out her favorite color was green. <laughs> I got a hat that was green for the Philly, brought some friends as proof. And then um, I gave her 300 ways to reach me in a, a birthday card, <laughs> uh, carrier pigeon, you know, whatever I could think of. And so that was it. So, you know, we, we were cool for a while. She came to a game in LA. We emailed here and there. So she was very nice. She's uh, very kind. At one point, she uh, missed, we were supposed to meet somewhere and she missed, uh, couldn't do it for some event. So she said she'd be my wake up call for three days in a row. And she called 
you know, every time exactly at the hour that I set before the game, things like that. So it, it was fun. And, and Jason, this is what you do. You, I meet just people, amazing people and, <laughs> and uh, can tell these great stories. <laughs> yeah. Just, just one more thing here. Where's that home plate now, Doug? Where would we find that? Yes, at, at my wife's approval, um, <laughs> we I dug it up and we it's actually on the wall. So if you go up the stairs in my house, it's it's uh, along the wall amongst other crazy memorabilia like uh, when Michael played against Michael Jordan. I have a picture of that. Uh, I have the first hit at Enron Field, which is now Minute Maid Park. I have a picture of that. I have a, a photo with Kurt Schilling from when we were adorned because of your column again. Uh, in Baseball Weekly about uh, oh, yeah. athletes and video games. So yeah, it's basically the wall's dedicated to you now that I think about it. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah, here's what I have to say to you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, now, uh, we should also mention the first time you told this story on our podcast, who tweeted about it, Doug? Initials TB, right? Yes, she she did like and uh, retweet. Did. Yes, uh, so apparently the memory runs deep. So, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, uh, it was an amazing yeah. time. But we we just had fun, and and of course that's what it, I usually spend my time trying to meet Hall and Oates, and like that's what I usually leverage <laughs> my stardom, quote unquote. But um, it's it's been a great ride, and and I'm glad that we can keep it going. Yeah, me too. And like that story is a good indicator of what we aspire to do on this podcast. We have fun with some of the nutty stuff that goes on in baseball all the time. And we'll do that again too. When our friend, our colleague, Ken Rosenthal joins us in a couple of moments to discuss the ouster of Dave Dombrowski as the president of baseball operations in Boston. But you should also know one more thing out there. We divide this podcast up into innings, and since I've somehow become the wink Martindale of baseball, we start every inning with a trivia question. And the way this works is the first four innings of our game can be found on iTunes, Spotify, all of our favorite podcast platforms. But then, guess what? We have bonus innings available on the Athletic app and the Athletic website, plus the weekly trivia stumper from one of our listeners, and our fabulous stupid baseball bet, which we keep track of every week. It just gets better and better. So if you want to keep listening when you're done and also get a 40% discount on a subscription to The Athletic, you just need to click on the link to where you found us in the first place. Everybody got that? Great. Let's play our game. All right, let's ask our first inning trivia question. And the great Ken Rosenthal will be part of our panel trying to answer this stumper. The last time the Red Sox repeated as World Series champions, which famous slugger also won the most games on their team as a pitcher? Think, think you guys can get this? Gee, I guess that would be Babe Ruth. <laughs> Ken's so good at this. I don't remember. I don't remember David Ortiz. <laughs> yeah, Ortiz guys. didn't pitch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yes, definitely the big. Yeah. Okay, you guys got it. Uh, Red Sox uh, last won the World Series twice in a row as recently as 1915 and 16. Uh, that Babe Ruth guy went 23 and 12 mm. in 1916. 
And I think we now know that the Red Sox are not going to repeat as champions this year. Late Sunday night, something unbelievable happened. The Red Sox essentially fired the man who built that championship team, Dave Dombrowski. And here to help us make sense of what happened is our friend Ken Rosenthal joining us in Starkville. Ken, I'm assuming it's your first trip to Starkville. Welcome. It is my first trip, and it's long awaited for me. It's great to be with you guys. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking time out of a really busy day. Um, Ken, I, I think we've all been on alert for this since the day a few weeks ago when Dan Shaughnessy, uh, the great columnist at the Boston Globe, wrote that he would be shocked if David Dombrowski was running the Red Sox next year. But to do it with three weeks left in the season? Tell me why you think this happened now. I don't know the answer to that question. And the only thing that came to my mind, Jason, when this timing occurred was what happened in Detroit. That, too, was abrupt in 2015. Really abrupt. It came out of nowhere. And later we found out that Dombrowski was basically trying to force the issue or get an answer about his status, and they gave him an answer. So perhaps the same thing occurred in this particular circumstance. There has been all this talk about his status, and he has a contract for next year. Maybe he wanted an extension. Maybe he wanted some resolution. Who knows? But yes, the timing certainly was odd in the middle of Sunday night baseball, essentially. Right. And I, I think that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I asked David later what happened in Detroit. Um, and he he told me that he had the vibe that this was about to go down. And so he essentially asked Mike Illich to clarify <laughs> what was happening. Well, they clarified it. And I it, yes. it really I mean, look, this just happened as we record this. So we're still making sense of it. Details will emerge, obviously. But I, I did get the sense that that's basically what happened here. Um, Dan Shaughnessy wrote what he wrote. Nobody in ownership, nobody in management. Uh, John Henry didn't speak. Tom Warner didn't speak. Sam Kennedy didn't speak. Nobody said, oh, that's wrong. Right? Nobody said that. So I, that, that was an indication that everybody knew it was happening except maybe him. And so now let's look at the reasons that they felt that way. I mean, first off, um, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of complaining from Red Sox fans about David trading all their prospects to win now. In his defense, isn't that exactly what he was brought there to do? Yes, that is exactly what he was brought there to do. And if the Red Sox did not think that this was going to happen – they were kidding themselves. They wanted this to happen. They wanted to win a title and whatever it took to win the title was going to be completely fine with them as far as trading products, giving out contracts, whatever the case might have been. So the mission was clear. He fulfilled that mission. Now, whenever something like this happens, the team might have reasons that are not yet known. And that's something we certainly should consider here. But if they are dismissing him because they feel like he is not the right guy for going forward, that's a little bit of a different question because they're entering a period of transition. There's no question about that. So in some ways, I get it. But my goodness, we're 10 months removed from the Red Sox winning the 2018 World Series. What's the standard for the next guy? Ben Sherrington gets dumped less than two years after winning the World Series. So as I wrote Friday... I guess the next guy's got to go back to back. 
I mean, what, what are we talking about here? <laughs> and that's a real problem yeah. in some ways as they look for another GM because ultimately that person is going to be under a tremendous amount of pressure. Now, it's Boston, the history of the franchise, the meaning of the franchise in the city. All of that is so attractive to all of these potential wannabe GMs. I get it. They're going to get somebody good. But what I just described, that looms over the next GM as well. Well, and Ken, I mean, is, do, you, do you think that, I mean, if are we having this conversation if the Red Sox are a game out of the wild card? I mean, they, you know, they've slipped to eight games back. Uh, the pitching has been a disaster. I mean, how much do you think is, you know, that performance is attributed to his moves and the circumstances they find themselves in? Doug, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I have an answer. Now, the first part of that question, if they're a game out of the wild card, is this happening? Not at this moment. It may happen at the end of the season, depending on how it would have turned out, but it wouldn't have happened, I don't believe, at this moment. So certainly the team's performance, the sale contract, the Evaldi contract, all played into this. But at the same time, I have little sympathy for ownership when they get upset over big contracts. Uh, Who is signing the checks? (laughs) These moves are not done in blind faith by the president of baseball operations only. It's a group decision. So yes, you follow his advice. And if the advice is not good, ultimately that could lead to change that happens everywhere in baseball. But just seems a very odd decision in some respects. Now, again, as I was pointing out, we're going to have a story on this later today from Evan Jelich. The processes Dombrowski followed, the way he dealt with Red Sox employees, all of the different things that are internal dynamics, might not have been what the Red Sox were used to, might not have been ultimately productive in the long term, and that very well could be a part of what is going on here. Again, we don't know, and the news came out this morning that the ownership is not going to be present at a press conference today to answer these questions, which I find to be very odd and not good. Wow. Uh, you know, I think you're exactly right, Ken. I, I know one thing that I had heard about uh, David Dombrowski, and I'd heard this in his previous stops, was he wasn't as inclusive as the Red Sox were used to. You know, people who were accustomed to being included in the big decisions weren't being included anymore. Uh, he had a circle. He relied on his circle. And if you weren't in that circle, you often weren't consulted. Some of the people on the outside who weren't in the circle had a lot of power in that organization, were close to the owner, John Henry. I mean, don't you think that had a lot to do with this? It had something to do with it, no doubt. And I heard it a little bit differently, Jason, but it's basically the same thing with a different twist. What I heard is it, that he's not an easy guy to work for, that he is quick-tempered, he's short, he's impatient, and that it makes for kind of an unpleasant work environment. And that goes kind of hand in hand with what you just described and not being inclusive, not being what the Red Sox were used to. Now, it's interesting. People have different public faces. Jason, I would imagine in all your dealings with Dave Dombrowski, you would never describe him the way I just did. I would never describe him the way I just did in all my dealings with him. And at times he has been upset with me. And it still has not reached a point where I would say, wow, that guy's out of line. But you do hear all you do hear all of these things. And I would imagine, yes, it factored in. And again, I imagine in the days ahead, we'll hear more 
and the Red Sox have a nice history of tarring people on their way out. So we'll see what happens. But at the same time, in the big picture, 30,000 foot view, the fact that they're firing the guy who got them the World Series title just 10 months after that happened is one of the more stunning things we've seen. Yeah, I can't. I, I honestly, I said this to you earlier today. I, I cannot remember any team winning the World Series and then letting go the guy who built the team less than a year after the parade. And look, I, I mean, no, no matter how Dave Dombrowski conducted himself, uh, even if it was what they were not used to, um, let's just be clear. This is a Hall of Fame baseball executive. He won the World Series for the Florida Marlins. He built one of the great teams of this century in Detroit, even though they never won the World Series. And then he won again in Boston. Um, and now this is the second time in five years that the Red Sox have pushed out the guy who built a World Series team and did it in the middle of a season. Did that with Ben Sherrington too, when they hired David. Right, Jason. And I, I was going to say, I, excuse me one second. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say this quickly so you can continue. But the only precedent I can remember for something like this was the Sherrington Dombrowski changeover. That was right. shocking. Right. It was out of nowhere. It was in the middle of a game. That's the only thing I can remember close to this. I'm sure there may be others that we were missing in our heads, but that was the one. Uh, no, I agree. And like, I, I find this incredible irony in all this because like, think about it. How much more stable are the Yankees now than the Red Sox, right? Brian Cashman has been the GM longer than anybody else. What, like, does this say anything to us about the inner workings of the Red Sox? I think it says a lot about the inner workings of the Red Sox and about the way ownership conducts itself. And when you have a firing, and I always write this whenever there's a manager fired, or GM fired at that level, at that level and above, the manager and above. That's an organizational failure, okay? It's not one guy. It's an organization. And when you have to do this in the Red Sox ownership's minds, well, guess what? The owners are responsible to. And I don't know how to quite characterize the way they go about it, ownership, but certainly they're impatient. Certainly, they are prone to 180-degree turns, and certainly, they are a little bit unpredictable. So, sure, it says a ton about the Red Sox ownership. And, Jason, the contrast you draw there with the Yankees is a very telling one because for whatever people might think of Hal Steinbrenner, and I know some Yankee fans think he needs to spend more. Not that the Yankees don't spend, but that's the view (laughs) – They are one stable operation. And there was a time, I believe in around 2006, when the Yankees had their factions, the Tampa group, the New York group, and Cashman said, I'm not staying if we don't stop this. And they unified it. This was when George was still alive. And Cashman went on to build maybe the best analytics department in the sport. He's got maybe the best scouts in the sport. And they are accordingly producing really good teams now and it's 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 a pleasure to watch them operate from a distance just to see their front office and how they've done it all these guys they've brought in this year who have been great depth pieces that's a testament to an organization so yeah the contrast between the two teams could not be more stark right now 
good that's a good word to find. I was gonna say um, that. <laughs> Doug, I'll let you <laughs> Doug, let me I'll let you ask a question in a second, but I want I want to make one more point about the Red Sox and the Yankees. The the Red Sox finished eight games ahead of the Yankees last year. And as we record this, they're 17 and a half games back <laughs> this year. That is an incredible 25 and a half game swing. Um, I mean, they're they're heading toward potentially the biggest year to year swing in, in in modern times since they've been in the same division. Uh, we talked about this on MLB Network the other night. The only one larger was 1986 uh, after Bill Buckner, followed by the, the the way things flipped in 1987. I believe that was a 27-game swing. This could potentially be the biggest swing ever, Yankees and Red Sox. And it's just fascinating to think about what it tells us about where they are now, both of them as organizations. Jason, also in keep in mind, too, and this is important to remember, you win a World Series – it's hard to do it again the next year. We've seen this repeatedly this decade, and the way teams use their pitching to get to a World Series title, the way the Red Sox did, it makes it difficult. It leads to a spring training in which you baby your pitchers, a, an April in which your pitchers aren't ready, and all of these other issues sort of all stem from that. Now, is it worth it? I would say for a fan, it probably is worth it, but that is part of what is going on here too. Now, there may be a number of factors that we have no idea about, as I said before, that led to this. But if you're an owner and you don't understand that and you're holding Dombrowski accountable for that, that to me is not great baseball awareness. Yeah, and I was wondering, you know, can the relationship between Dombrowski and, and sort of this modern manager that's that we see much more, we see a lot more grooming of managers as special assistants. They're, they're former players like Alex Cora, not necessarily a ton of managerial direct experience in the minor leagues per se. But, um, you know, do you, uh, did you have any pulse of Dombrowski's relationship with this sort of new sensibility on how managers were qualified and decided to uh, be hired? Well, Doug, he hired Cora and it was pretty brilliant. <laughs> and yeah. From everything I can tell, though, I know Dan Shaughnessy wrote otherwise today, his relationship with Cora was quite good and there was no problem. Now, I'm yeah. sure things came up. Things always come up between a manager and GM. I don't believe his relationship with the manager was as much of a problem as maybe his relationship with analytics people, the other front office staffers that Jason discussed who were holdovers from the previous regime. So it's Again, kind of an unknown. It's interesting, though. Somebody made the point to me this morning that Dombrowski did not fire anyone in the Red Sox front office. Some left to go with Mike Hazen to Arizona. That's only natural. But not only did he not fire anyone, most everyone got promotions. So you would think, okay, maybe people thought they were treated well. But to Jason's point about inclusion and to what I was saying about possible friction – just because you get a promotion doesn't mean you're going to be happy in the long term. So, again, there's so many things here we don't know. It's always dangerous to speculate too far. But what we do know is he won the World Series 10 months ago, and he's not the president of baseball operations anymore. Kenny, you're the busiest man in the business, so we're going to let you go. But thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for visiting Starkville. And be sure to get your passport stamped on the way down. Okay? Hey, it's an honor to be part of Starkville. 
<laughs> All right, Ken. Thank you. All right, Thanks, guys. Careful what you wish for, though, man. You could easily be dragged right back I, I through the no city problem. limits. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. All right, Doug. We are on our own now. Here is your second inning question: Which team? has played in the most wildcard games without ever winning one. Ooh. <clears throat> so now we're talking... Okay, the, so not the sudden 2012 death. Okay. to 18. Okay. Yes. 12, Just 18. the two wildcard games playing each other in the one game. Ooh, wow. Coin flip game. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> how, how about, a, you, you know, how about like the Pittsburgh Pirates? Yeah, I, you, I lured you right into my trap because we all remember the Pirates losing those two right. back-to-back wildcard games. They won games. one. They won one finally, but, didn't they? But they did. They beat the Reds in the Johnny Cueto dropped the ball game. Oh, yeah. Remember that one? Yeah, they, they rattled them. That's right. So the actual answer is the Oakland A's. Ooh, I thought They lost that, that crazy game to the Royals in 2014. Lost to the Yankees last year. Started an opener. So they're the answer to this question. The poor A's. Yeah, my goodness. But anyway, Doug, uh, I'm sure you recall, last week we played America's new favorite game, Countdown to Oblivion. Yes. (laughs) And that was a big hit out there. And, you know, we had huge developments last week in wildcard land. So we're going to play the game again. And I just have a feeling you're not even going to give the same answers that you gave last week because stuff has changed. But uh, first, here's how we play the game. You can play along with us at home. Uh, what we do is we take the fan graphs projection for how many wins it's going to take to sneak into the wildcard game. Then we'll see how many games the teams in the race can afford to lose All right. the rest of the season. All right, so Doug, I'll, I'll read the team. I'll read the number. I'll give you the record they'll need to have. Then you're going to tell me dead or alive. <laughs> uh, and and I, I believe you've even offered to provide the cause of death, which introduces a whole new CSI wrinkle. So is that true? You're going to do that? Yeah, I will, I will officially announce the cause of death. That's correct. <laughs> All right. You know, like, you don't have to do that, but if you, if you feel like it, right. that's cool. Okay, now, are you ready to play Camp Down to Oblivion, uh, Doug Landon? I'm ready. Bring it on. All right, let's start with the National League. Uh, now, the Fangrass projection as recently as last Friday was 89 wins. And the Cubs had kind of a messy weekend in Milwaukee, as I'm sure you noticed. Uh, so the, the projection is back down to 87. Yeah. So here's what we've got. The New York Mets... They can afford to lose five games the rest of the season to get to 87. They'd have to go 13 and five. So the Mets, Doug, dead or alive? They're dead. And um, my medical opinion, there's two factors. One, I call (laughs) bullpenicitis, the inflammation of the bullpen. So that has been complete disaster, as we saw in the record-setting <laughs> Nationals game. Uh, and I think it's also a combination of that and mad cow disease. So, you know, it's, <clears throat> when, you, when you have those two things converge, the season is over. So just put the tombstone up. 
You know, I've seen a lot of auto body shops around City Field. I've n- I can't remember seeing any mad cow farms, but you have spoken. All right, the Philadelphia Phillies, their number is seven. They'd have to go 13-7 and seven to get the 87 wins. The Phillies, Doug, dead or alive. Yeah, this will not endear me to my Philly faithful, but uh, the Phillies are dead. Uh, and... I attribute it because of the strength of schedule. They're playing a ton of teams over 500. Uh, Braves, Indians, Braves, Nats. I mean, this is not good. So if it's like, if you want to compare it to like alcohol, like 500 proof, that's what they're dealing with. So I would say cause of deaths is alcohol poisoning. Uh, it's not schedulitis. Yeah. Well, I, you know, too many inflammations <laughs> out there. So, yes. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be this jocular about the death of these teams. This is cold. Yeah, this is kind of cold. Um, all right. The Milwaukee Brewers, Doug, uh, they're also at 7, 13 and 7 to get to 87 wins. They have new life after the weekend, right? Are they dead or alive? Well, you can cue up the soundtrack uh, for Taps. Uh, let's get Taps going here. They are dead. Uh, and uh, the cause of death what? is... Yes, what? Yeah, they're dead. They're dead. They're two, they're two games behind the Cubs. I know the Cubs are limping along here. Uh, and I'm going to attribute Road Rash, uh, an extreme case of Road Rash, because they play 13 out of their 20 remaining games on the road. Uh, it, it's not gone well for the entire NL Central on the road. And the Brewers also have, you know, Josh Hader can, you know, how many games can this guy go two innings? I mean, his arm's falling off. So that's it. Road rash, Brewers dead. See you later. Go make some more beer in the offseason. Wow. You're going to be hearing from Bernie Brewer on this one, man. Yeah. You are. I welcome it. Uh, all right. The, the, the rampaging Arizona Diamondbacks, seven is their number. To get to 87 wins, they have to go 12 and 7. So the Diamondbacks, dead or alive? Well, I am just to let you know that I'm not the Grim Reaper. I am actually resuscitating and reincarnating the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think last week I declared them dead. They are alive. Yeah, you killed them off. Yeah, I got to bring them back to life here with like the paddles. I mean, they, <laughs> they, Marte has been, you know, incredible. And their schedule, by the way, I mean, they're, they're in good shape. They play the Mets, the Reds, the Marlins, and the Padres twice. And they do a lot of it at home. So, yeah, they're they're very much alive. Wow. Doug Glanville has just performed CPR, <laughs> the podcast version, on the Diamondbacks. Won't they be excited? <laughs> they're back. They are back from the crypt. Um, all right, let's talk about your Chicago Cubs, Doug. Their number is nine to get to 87 wins. They merely have to go 11 and nine. So the Cubs, Doug, after this rough weekend, another rough weekend in Milwaukee, dead or alive. Yeah, I think the mighty Cubbies are still alive. They're still in the mix. I mean, right now they're in the driver's seat. They're the number two wildcard team. They still got a game and a half up on Arizona, even though it's it's been narrowing. They have been great at home. So, yes, they didn't do three and four in Milwaukee, but they're still a solid team at home. A lot of injuries. They'll limp their way, but I think they're very much alive. It's football season. I am guessing you noticed that. If you have... Why don't you check out the Athletics' all-new lineup of NFL podcasts? They're amazing. Like Football Fact Check. Each week, Dave Damashek scours the NFL 
for all the stuff we love here at Starkville. Oddities, absurdities, those great once-in-a-lifetime moments. And then he gives you the recaps you didn't know you needed to hear. Join him every Monday and Wednesday. You just need to subscribe to Football Fact Check. That's S-H-E-K at theathletic.com slash football fact check. Got it? Great. Now back to Starkville. All right, Doug, let's go to the third inning. Here's your question. Which catcher has stolen more bases than any other catcher in baseball this season? Wow. You know, I used to be into that, like the John Stearns era, the Mets, you know, base dealer. Ah, that, I don't know this one. Let me throw like someone like JT Realmuto or something like that. How's that sound? <laughs> that's a wild guess. Yeah. It was a wild guess. That's a wild guess. Because that's correct. Oh, wow. It's JT Realmuto with Eight of them. So how about this? He's stolen the most bases, and he's thrown out the most guys trying to steal. Nice. That's what you call controlling the running game. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> right? he, he, he's like he is. So, people do not realize how fast this guy is. Uh, I haven't checked this year, but last year he had a faster sprint speed than Mookie Betts. Wow. Uh, but we're, we're not here to talk about the baseball's fastest catcher. We're here to talk about the slowest, and that would be Wilson Ramos of the Mets because, Doug, he was just responsible for my favorite goofy baseball story of the whole year. Uh, As I wrote in my useless information column last week, anybody can make history. It takes a really special guy to unmake history. (laughs) And that's what Wilson Ramos did. Uh, It was last year that he broke a record for most trips to the plate without ever stealing a base. Then, uh, a couple weeks ago, he did something way more creative. He unbroke the same record (laughs) by stealing a base. And, you know, because the reason we love this is he had no idea he'd done either one of those. Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, The Mets were playing the Braves. Uh, I'm actually at the game, right? It's the 10th inning, tie game, Wilson Ramos singles. So it's first and third. He's on first. His run doesn't matter. So the Braves don't care what he does over there. Like, so he he notices this. He takes off for second. He trots in standing up. Incredibly, (laughs) the official scorer rules that's a stolen base. I'm thinking, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, it's the first stolen base of his career. What do you think he did, Doug? You think he yanked the base out of the ground and kissed it? No, he didn't celebrate in any way whatsoever. Do you want to guess why that is? Because he didn't know he stole a base. He had no idea. Yes! <laughs> he had no idea. He, he assumed it was defensive indifference. And before we go on, Doug, I've been hearing for years that you have a problem with the very existence of a term called defensive indifference. So I'm going to give you a chance to vent. What's the problem? Yeah, it's too, it's, it's too, well, first of all, if someone's stealing something, you, you can't be indifferent. All right. So that's like, that's like criminal. <laughs> that's criminal in and of itself. All right. It's like aiding and abetting. Okay. It's negligence. So we can't have yeah. that. We're trying to be positive here. Your baseball is kind of a spiritual game, sacrifice, bunt, sacrifice. You know, we got to, we got to change that. So it's, I, I you know, you go defensive donation, uh, defensive charitable contribution. Uh, you know, that, you know, DCC, that, that works, uh, you know, false alarm or something like that. Or, you know, you just go, if you really want to go super technical, you just call it a 501c3 and then just call it a day. It's a 501c3. We're allowing you 
this charitable donation to have the next base. And you can write it off on your taxes when the season's over. Simple. Okay, that was beautiful. That was spiritual. You're done now, right? I, I, I'm, I'm done. Because <laughs> it was... But, yeah, it wasn't any of that. It was a stolen base. So back to our story. After the game, Wilson Ramos shockingly learns he had just stolen the first base of his career. So what does he do? He asks for the base. Well, that game is at City Field. He stole a base. You'd think they just give him the base, right? Wrong. The Mets couldn't give him the base because the same night, Ronald Acuna had entered the 30-30 club. And how did he do that? He stole the same base. So he asked for that base too. So like what I was told is a committee has to decide. And I'm guessing what they decide is like whose stolen base was the most historically significant. So of course I asked Wilson Ramos, which was bigger, Ronald Acuna's 30th steal or his first? And he said, oh, I think it's my first. It's easier for him to steal another 30 than it is for me to steal another one. Right. <laughs> like, of course he's, of course it is. So like not, and not to mention, he didn't just break a record. He unbroke a record. Doug, time for the fourth inning. Which teenage phenom last year managed to debut before his debut and hit a home run before he hit his first home run all through the magic of the suspended game rule. <laughs> That's a, is that the craziest question I ever uh, asked yeah, you? I had to read that a couple times now that you said it. Debut before his debut. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm not sure I, I have a clue on this one. Teenage phenom. Well, that Ronald Acuna Jr.? I don't know. How's that sound? No, he was not a teenager last year. He was 20. Oh, he's 20. Who was the, who was the great... Who was the great teen phenom last year? Come on, man. All right. Same league, same division. You got wait, this. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, oh, God. You're killing me. We're not talking. Well, Soto? How old is Soto? Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. Yeah, it's Juan Soto. <laughs> oh, he's 19. And, okay. here, and here's... <laughs> yes. Yeah, he was. He was 19. So here's how this worked. He played his first game for the Nationals last year on May 20th. But then, a few weeks later, June 18th, they finished a suspended game against the Yankees that started on May 15th. And after they resumed, Juan Soto hit a home run. So, so he debuted on May 20th, but he hit a home run on May 15th because, of course, he did. Right. <laughs> Baseball is the best. All right, so we mentioned this because last Friday, the A's and Tigers went down this same confusing road they had a game that started in Detroit in May and then finished last week in Oakland. And Doug, I, I have to admit this. I love the suspended game rule because it means you can go to a game and ask stuff like, what day is it? <laughs> or how come I have jet lag if baseball is telling me this game is in Detroit? Right. <laughs> right? So, is this a day game or a was, night we're, game? We're, right? Is it a day? Are we playing in the day or the night game? If you play it, it's another great question. Yeah. yeah so, so, so here are a couple of highlights from the goofy stuff that happened because of that suspended game. Josh Harrison struck out four weeks after he got released. Okay. He was at bat when the game got suspended. He had a two, two count on him. The raindrops came. He obviously couldn't finish the at bat in Oakland because he wasn't on the team. So Jordy Mercer, his friend came up and pinch hit for him, struck out 
And the strikeout was credited to <laughs> Josh Harrison. Yep, Josh Harrison, right. Uh, also, Jake Diekman pitched in two places in the same day. But which two? Okay. In May 19th, he pitched for the Royals in Anaheim. But now this game resumes. Uh, he's on the A's. So he pitches for the A's in the suspended game in Oakland. But wait, officially, that game was played in Detroit. So according to baseball, he pitched May 19th in Detroit, even though he was like 2,500 miles away on May 19th. And he wasn't even in Detroit when he pitched in Detroit. So, so Doug, here's what we've learned. <laughs> Thanks to the miracle of suspended games, time travel is possible. Striking out from your couch is possible. Here's my question. What else do you think might be possible? Well, allow me to quote Albert Einstein. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction made between past, present, and future is nothing more than a persistent, stubborn illusion. So we'll we'll start wow. we'll, we'll start with that. So um, wow, deep, yeah, deep, deep thought here. So this is I, I looked into this because this is what we do. Rule ten eighteen of Major League Code here is uh, the procedure when more than one pitcher is involved in giving a base on ball. So work with me right here. So I'm going to tell this story. Now, if a relief pitcher shall not be held accountable when the first batter to whom he pitches reaches first base on four called balls, if such batter has a decided advantage in a ball strike count. So if you come in and it's a 2-0 count, what if you walk the hitter, that goes to the pitcher, the original pitcher, not the substitute pitcher, because the hitter came in with an advantage caused by the previous pitcher. Right. right? So this is right. the scenario I came yes. up. Uh, so if I understand this rules correctly, pitcher X is on team A on the mound when the game is suspended, which happens with a two ball, no strike count. Let's just use that as an example. And hitter X is on team B. Three months later, you know, the game is resumed after it's suspended. And between the suspended game, the pitcher X gets traded to team B, the team that they were playing before. So the pitcher is traded to the other team. When the game resumes, that pitcher X pinch hits during for the suspended at bat, right? All right, so pitcher X pitched to <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you got you definitely do that. Right? Oh, you could do that, right? I don't know why you would do that, but yeah. Pitcher I, X pinch hits. So the, can I can I point out this was an American League game? Yes, Amer <laughs> yeah. that's okay. Well, you know, this is an American League game. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just go but with just it. Just okay, imagine, right? So he pinch hits in the resume game. Now he's the official pitcher of record because of the two ball no strike count if the hitter walks. So if the pitcher who now pinch hit walks, he therefore walked himself, right? Because the pitcher from the previous game before it was suspended got a 2-0 count. And when you leave the game in suspension, when the advantage was left by the previous pitcher, the walk goes on that pitcher's record, right? So after he's traded, that count is still live and still credited to that pitcher. So in effect, according to this rule, you can walk yourself. This is going to do it for those of you who are listening on iTunes, Spotify, places like that. But guess what? You can listen to more of this podcast. All you have to do is be a subscriber to The Athletic. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can click on the link where you found us to listen to us. And guess what? There's a 40% discount on a subscription to The Athletic. 
So why don't you do that? Why don't you subscribe? Why don't you keep on listening? Because we're going to keep going over at The Athletic. If you're leaving us, thanks for joining us. And join us again next week on Starkville.